Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Today we are beginning a new sermon series. Um, that will extend all the way through Christmas Eve. And this sermon series is called The Rescuer. And I want to take a few minutes as, as we begin today to talk about, kind of take an honest look at the world around us, at the world in us, and see that we are all searching for a rescue. Now, now, now when we look around the world, uh, around us, there is pain, evil, suffering, and fear. And what we find is that we're born into this world of brokenness. We're surrounded by it, and we struggle against this brokenness our entire lives. That we've all, ex- and if we're really, we take a look back at our history, we've all experienced someone hurting us in a way that leaves a lasting mark. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have probably inflicted lasting wounds onto other people. And what we see as we look at the woundedness in the world around us, and we see the woundedness in us, uh, I believe that there's three different responses that, generally speaking, that people have to the brokenness around us and in us. And, And the first response is that some of us seek to rise above the brokenness by our own strength. So this could mean seeking success, seeking importance, seeking power. Um, for, for those of us who might have grown up in the church, um, we might try to be outwardly religious. Look at me. Look at how good and right and, and perfect I really am. But it's all attempts to try to rise above the brokenness. And, and what we see, the result of all of this is a sense of overwork. You feel burdened to try to prove yourself that you can rise above the brokenness. And if you're on the outside looking in, um, people that follow this, I I'm myself admittedly kind of fit into this category, is that um, people that fit in this category can be very judgmental um, against others that aren't being perceived as good as, as, as they are doing, right? And then there's also an intense sense of jealousy with people that might be farther along than you might be, right? But what we see is this constant philosophy of picking ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of identifies the, this, this narrative to try to rise above the brokenness. But inwardly, if, you, if this is you, um, if you're really honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we become secretly hopeless, right? Like we can never truly rise above the brokenness. And what this breeds is inauthenticity. We can't really be honest about who we are. We can't take an honest look at ourselves because we'll find that we'll fall short. And what we see is that it's never enough. Our work is never enough to prove our own worthiness to rise above brokenness. That's kind of the first perspective um, and the first narrative that I see how people try to address brokenness. The second narrative is that some of us are overcome by this brokenness and are in despair. So this could be internal turmoil, external exhaustion, constant depression, and disintegration, really, while feeling the crushing nature of the world 
and our inability to change it. And what this results in is isolation. Most people say, hey, I am just so crushed by this world. I can't be around anybody else. I don't want to be hurt anymore. And so I'm just going to isolate and go into myself. Now, if you're on the outside looking in, you'll probably see people that respond to brokenness this way. They pull back. They seem to be antisocial. And then what happens is they lash out at others as an effort of self preservation. But if you, if this is you, inwardly, what you're experiencing is an, a deep inward sadness, a deep inward, in, inward joylessness. And this could even result in some trying to take their own life. And what we find the end of this is that isolation will never ultimately protect us, that we can never truly just succumb to this brokenness and isolate um, without attempting to try to change something, because the brokenness will always find us and it will always continue to hurt us. The, the third way that I see people trying to respond to brokenness is some of us seek to distract from the brokenness by trinkets, toys, or relationships. So some of us turn to worshiping another person as our personal savior. This is a distraction from the brokenness. So this could be, if you're a parent, this could be your children. You could worship your children to distract from the brokenness around and within. Um, this could be a significant other, like a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or this could even be a meaningful relationship in your life, maybe a codependent relationship that is pulling you in, sucking you in um, to distract you from brokenness. With, with others, it, it might be in this kind of category, maybe substances, right? Like an abuse of substances like alcohol, drugs, sex, or even hobbies, even good things that you can take to the nth degree that serve to distract you from the brokenness around. And, and what I also find, too, as a form of distraction is some people attempt to self-actualize. It's, it's saying that maybe the world is broken and I'm broken because I'm not truly who I am inside, and I just need to free from the shackles of society that has oppressed me, and maybe I can self-actualize and visualize myself differently, and then I'll be a different person. Now, outwardly, if you're looking uh, from the outside in at a person who responds to brokenness this way, they can be very enthusiastic, but they can also be very flighty. They can be excessive. And these are the type of people that you love to be around, right? Because they're always trying new things, new hobbies, new experiences. But inwardly, if this is something that you address, if this is how you address brokenness, what you see is that you're momentarily distracted, but it always ends in hopelessness. Then you start the cycle again to seek a new pursuit, a new relationship, a, a new attempt at distraction. But what we see is that distraction for a moment is not worth the depression and the upheaval that follows it. Like a bungee cord, you can extend out to distract a little bit, but it pulls us right back in with even greater force the more we try to get away from it. Now, now all three of these attempts, the attempts to rise up, the attempts to just um, isolate or the attempt to distract, all of these kind of have a unifying theme, is that we are all looking for a rescuer. We're all looking for someone to come and save us. Why? because we are broken. And we've got to ask the question then, why are we broken? Why is this brokenness prevalent and present in the world around us and in us? And that's what brings us to our need for a rescuer. And this is what gets us 
to the text that we're coming to today. And I, I want to start and end with this phrase, is that the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, right? This is not like fairy tales or fables. It's not a series of disconnected stories strung together, but rather the Bible is one story that points to Jesus at its center and specifically Jesus's rescuing work to rescue us from the clutches of brokenness. The Bible is one unified story. And when we look at the opening pages of this book, just in in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that everything God created was made good. There was no brokenness. There was full joy. Adam and Eve were completely at peace, were completely unified. And Adam and Eve were created unified in four different ways. They first vertically were created completely at peace with God. The Bible actually says that God used to enter into the garden every day at the cool of the day, and he used to walk with Adam and Eve. He used to spend time with them. And so we find that our relationship with God was completely filled with peace, wholeness, fullness, and thriving. Then we see that our relationship with each other horizontally was completely thriving, was completely filled with joy and peace. When Adam is presented to Eve in the garden, Adam sings her a song. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man, out of me. He says, this is part of me and I'm going to give her all of me. She's going to give me all of her and together we're going to thrive together. There was no brokenness between Adam and Eve at all. Not only that, but there was a connectedness um, um, inwardly as well, right? There was, the Bible says that they were naked and not ashamed. There was no shame. Can you imagine a world without marital conflict and without shame? But that's what it was like in the Garden of Eden before the fall, that there was no shame. There was complete wholeness, um, complete confidence in, in who Adam and Eve were created to be. They understood their identity and lived out of that identity. And finally, what we see is that there was perfect harmony with all of creation, with the earth around them. That um, when they would plant a seed, things would grow, right? Um, uh, Work was not a toiling thing. Work was a joy-filled process that Adam and Eve got a chance to partner together with. And so their, their food was easily come by. There was no arguments. There was no fighting. There was no killing between animals. Everything was just pure and complete and connected in every way that we could possibly imagine. And then we see that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. Look with me at Genesis 2. It says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, and this is what he said. He said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. Now, what God does is he puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He gives them one rule. Don't eat of this one fruit off of this one tree. And there's many questions as to why God chose to do this. But in the simple way and for the brief moment of time that I have to address this, because we could talk quite at length about it, I, I believe a simple answer is this, is that God wanted to give Adam and Eve a choice. And I think in the absence of choice, there can be no true love. There can only be true love present when there's a choice to love the person or not. And God did not want to create automatrons. He did not want to create robots. He wanted to create real people they could have a real relationship with. And so really what he did was give Adam and Eve a choice. 
And what we find is at the beginning of the third chapter, probably the second page on your Bible, I mean, it's that quick, is that what happened is an evil serpent began to creep into the garden. And what this the serpent did was he tempted Eve and Adam was standing right beside her, silent and passive the whole time. And this is what we see in Genesis 3 after the serpent causes Eve to question whether God is really good. So when the woman saw that the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what we see is that, of course, this brokenness, this sin, this disobedience causes everything to break down. And what happens is that the world broke in four ways. First off, vertically. Our relationship with God was shattered. When God enters in the cool of the day, remember he used to walk with Adam and Eve, but because they had done something wrong, it says that they ran away and hid from him. Our relationship with God was broken. Next, we see our relationship between us and each other was broken. We see blame shifting begin to happen. In verse 12, God turns to Adam and says, why did you do this? And Adam points to his wife and says, this woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Although Adam was there with her silent and passive the whole time. So we see their connection between um, each other begins to break down. Then we see between us and ourselves, we see shame enter into the picture. Um, God even asks Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? Who brought this sense of questioning? Why would you question the beauty of your body? Why would you question the beauty of how I created you, your identity? And yet they did. They began to question it and they tried to put these temporary coverings over themselves. Shame entered and broke how we view ourselves. And finally, between us and creation, in verse 17, God says, the ground is now cursed because of this decision that you have made and in toil you will till it. And so essentially what he's saying is that Adam's work is not going to be easy anymore. It's going to be hard. The earth is going to work against humans. It's going to work against Adam and Eve, and work is going to be toilsome and difficult. Now, you might come to this point and say, Josh, we're celebrating Advent. We're celebrating the baby Jesus. Why are you talking about this deeply depressing sense of brokenness? Well, um, there's a reason for that. And because Two things. One, we need to understand why the world is broken to understand the significance of Christ's arrival. But secondly, and even more importantly than this, there's something that happens in Genesis 3 that is unbelievable. There's something, and this is your $50 word for the week, something called the proto-evangelion that I want to talk about for the rest of our time today. Now, proto means first. Euangelion means gospel or good news. There is the first good news that has entered into the world after this brokenness is when God is speaking to the serpent as the serpent is being cursed or as the curse of God is being explained to the serpent. So what we see is that the first good news occurs on the very same page as Adam and Eve fall, right after everything became a mess. We, I actually think it was probably um, maybe a few minutes or maybe even just a few hours right after this happened 
that God begins to speak a message of hope. And it's some of the most beautiful words in the Old Testament, if we understand them. And I want to walk through them with you in detail. Now, as we're leading up to reading Genesis 3.15, let me orient us for a quick second. Now, remember, Adam and Eve eat of this fruit. There's an evil serpent in the garden. And, and th- there's, there's God is then now explaining to Adam and Eve how the world is cursed as a result of their actions. And he first speaks to that evil serpent that came into the garden. Now, what we find is that the evil serpent is actually Satan incarnate. Look with me at Revelation 12, and there's a few other places that we can turn to as well. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. So we see that before God created Adam and Eve, that Satan had rebelled against God and is now trying to harm God and trying to harm God's plans in the world. And what we see is that now it's the four of them are in the garden. And can you imagine, this might have been a little weird, right? So it's, it's God, it's Adam, it's Eve, and it's Satan. And you can probably imagine that Satan is experiencing a great enjoyment right now. He's trying to thwart the plans of God. And so the pinnacle of God's creation was mankind, was Adam and Eve. And they were designed to procreate. They were designed to grow. They were designed to thrive. And what Satan does is he completely thwarts that. And he has achieved a massive victory. He has undercut God's plan to have a relationship with Adam and Eve. And he's probably feeling good about himself. But God speaks directly to the devil. He speaks directly to Satan, this evil serpent first. And in his speech to Satan is actually rooted a promise of a rescuer. Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, and I will put enmity, that word means hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you're seeing this for the first time, you might say, how in the world is this good news? But I want us to look and see how 315 gives us the promise of a rescuer. So the first thing that God says to the serpent is, I will put enmity. I'm going to put hostility, right? There's hostility that's going to engage between who? Between you and the woman. Now, this is really kind of interesting. Remember, God had created Adam first. God had given Adam the responsibility to protect Eve. But here, God focuses on the woman. And this is very interesting. It means that there's something special about both Eve and women in general. You see, Adam was supposed to be the one to protect Eve and did not. But now that there's a special conflict between the serpent and not Adam, who's supposed to be Eve's protector, but now there's a special conflict that God says he is going to create between the serpent and the woman. And the next phrase explains this even further. It says, between your offspring and her offspring. Remember, he's speaking to the serpent. So the the offspring means seed. It means race. It means children. It means offspring. Now, what we see first is that Satan will have seed. Satan will have offspring. And what we find is that this is evil propagating in the world, that his evil, his torment, his temptation, it will propagate, it will breed, and it will multiply. That Satan's work is absolutely not over in the garden. It, it frankly just begins and gets a, a foothold. But then it says, the woman 
will have seed. Again, this is very weird. Let me ask you a question for my adults in the room. Do women have seed? No. The man is the one that has the seed. And every other genealogy in the Bible, it is predominantly dominated by men. Men are the ones that carry the seed. Men are typically the ones that carry the legacy, right? It's the son of who is the son of who is the son of. That's how most genealogies are built. But, but God is saying something very special here, that there will come an offspring, a seed of the woman not of a man. Now, do you see how this might be a little confusing here? How can you have the seed of a woman without a man's involvement? Does this quite sound familiar? Friends, this is a prophecy of the virgin birth, that one day a woman will have a unique, a special offspring. And we get now a little bit more hints about who this offspring actually is. In the next phrase, it says, he shall bruise your head. Remember, he's speaking to the serpent. But now we get another picture of the seed of the woman. The offspring of the woman will be a man. Okay, because he says he, he used the pronoun he. And so then it says the offspring will be a man. And this man, it says, will bruise your head, the serpent's head. Now, the word bruise can mean to either crush or to strike at, depending on the context. It can mean to either crush or strike at. Now, here's my question that I need to ask you. Remember, it's the four of them in the garden. It's God, it's Adam, it's Eve, and it's the serpent who is the devil. Now, how do you kill a serpent? You have to handle its head. You got to figure out what to do with its head. You either cut its head off or you crush its head. That is how you crush a serpent. That's how you defeat a serpent. Now, do you see what he's talking about here? Remember the word bruise means to crush. It's saying that, they, that this, this promised seed, this man who will come from the offspring of the woman will crush your head. He will crush the serpent's head, dealing a fatal blow. Now, look with me at the next phrase. He then says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. Now, again, I want you to think about who's listening to this. Now, as, as we believe that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible, and he's giving this to the people of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt's captivity, thousands of years later. And so, but, but I want you to think about an ancient Near Eastern man's foot. I know that sounds a little weird, right? Okay, we're talking about an Advent series. I'm asking you to think about an ancient Near, Near Eastern man's foot. Now, back then, they didn't have manicures and pedicures, okay? Sorry, guys, you didn't get those back then. Now, I want you to picture what a Middle Eastern man's foot was like and what his heel was like. Most often, they would walk around either barefoot or with a tiny leather sandal on the bottom of their feet. Can you imagine? Their feet were so calloused. Their feet were so hard, they could probably step on a nail and it would not pierce. Now, I want you to think about a serpent delivering a strike at a heel. That is a non-lethal blow. Now, again, I want us to put this together. So a special man who is born not of the seed of a man, but of the seed of a woman a special seed will deliver a lethal blow to the offspring of evil, will deliver a lethal blow to the offspring of Satan, and in the process, he will receive a non-lethal blow. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this maybe sound like the beginning of the story of Jesus? Well, if it sounds familiar, that's good, because it's supposed to be. This is the first gospel. This is the promise. 
God promises a lineage. He promises a rescuer. He promises a savior that will come into the world, that will crush the head of the serpent. And as he does that, he will, he will receive a non-fatal blow. God promises a rescuer, the Proto-Evangelion. Now, the question that we have to ask is, what happens next? And that's where we get into the lineage of the rescuer. Now, the rest of the Old Testament follows the seed of Adam and Eve. It follows this promise of a coming rescuer that will come from the seed of Adam and Eve. Let's begin to think through just for a few minutes about how the Old Testament is all centered on this idea of the offspring of Eve. Now, now Adam and Eve have two kids immediately after this. They have Cain and Abel. Now, what we see is this, the serpent also has seed. The serpent is also propagating evil in the world. And what we see in the very next chapter, chapter four of Genesis, um, is that the, that this evil, this propagation of evil from the serpent, it begins to fill Cain, and Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. Cain is then cursed. Now, you can't get a promised rescuer. You can't get a promised seed from a cursed lineage. And so Abel's dead. Cain is cursed. But Adam and Eve have a third child. His name is Seth. And the Bible says that when Seth is born, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And for the rest of the entirety of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find the seed of Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, is what the, the entire Bible is now focused on, this third, this third offspring of Adam and Eve. But one thing we see is that as people begin to call upon the name of the Lord, evil again continues to have offspring. It continues to propagate. Evil overcomes the world, and God sends a worldwide flood, but this is what happens. He saves the offspring of Seth and a man named Noah and his children. God preserves the seed. He miraculously preserves humanity in the lineage of Seth. Now, Noah has children, and in Genesis 11, we get to a man named Terah. He is directly from the lineage of Noah, who is directly in the lineage of Seth. But Terah is named after a pagan god. He has completely forgotten about who the one true God is. But Terah had a child, and his name was Abram. And what God does is in Genesis 12, 1, God miraculously breaks open. He comes into the world, and he speaks directly from heaven to Abram directly. And God speaks to Abram in Genesis 12, and he gives him what? A promise of seed. He says, you will have a child, and you will have an entire nation of people that will come from you. And he says that this offspring that will come from you will bless not just your people, but will bless the entire world with a global blessing and a global salvation. And we'll, and he, God is going to create a new people of God. But here's the problem. Abram was too old for seed, and his wife Sarah was old and barren. And so for years, this man Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, Abraham waited for God. So Genesis 15, God comes back to him and promises him a promised seed. In Genesis 18, God comes back to him and promises a seed, an offspring. He even tells Abraham to look up at the stars of the heaven, that his descendants will be as new numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham waited, and God said that his wife Sarah would have a son, but she was so old, and they were both barren. But what we see again, God steps into the story, and God miraculously intervenes in the woman Sarah with a miraculous 
birth. Again, sound familiar? Sound like a theme building, right? Sarah has this promised seed and his name is Isaac. Now, Isaac grows up, big strong man, has two children, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau's the older, Jacob's the younger. Now, we think the promise is going to pass on to the oldest, but no, God, this is not about lineage, but it's about God's sovereign choices. And so the younger brother, Jacob, he deceives his father, Isaac, and he receives the promise of blessing and the promise of a seed. God chooses the least likely brother to carry on the promised seed. And so from this point forward, we follow the lineage of Jacob. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was a man named Judah. He was the son, not of the woman that Jacob loved, but he was the son of a woman that Jacob did not even want and was tricked into marrying. Now, there's a global famine that happens. And on an excursion to Egypt to get food, um, Judah's younger brother is at risk of being taken captive in Egypt. And what Judah does is Judah stands up to one of the highest rulers of the land who actually turns out to be his brother that he had betrayed. And he offers himself as a representative substitute to protect his younger brother, Benjamin, in Egypt. So we see for the first time this promised seed. Now there's a theme beginning to form of a substitute that is a representative of someone or something else. Now, one of Judah's, fast forward a couple hundred, maybe even a thousand years, one of Judah's great, 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 great grandsons was a young boy named David. David was born in the nation of Israel, and he's the youngest of all of his brothers, and they were all out to war. Now, young David goes out to bring his brothers war as they're on the front lines, but he is surprised to find that no one is fighting. What happens is that he looks across a valley, and he sees a giant on the other side. And this giant is representing this warring nation, warring against Israel, and this giant's name is Goliath. And Goliath is mocking the nation of Israel. This giant challenges all the nation of Israel and says, you bring your best fighter out here. And if, if he defeats me, we'll serve you. And if I defeat him, we'll serve you. But no one steps up. All of these hardened warriors are shaking in their boots because of this Goliath, this huge, massive giant. They're afraid to fight him, certain that they're going to lose. But little David, the youngest of all of his brothers, steps up, get this, as the representative substitute for God's people. David walks out into the middle of this valley. He defeats the giant Goliath and he wins a victory on behalf of all of God's people. And they all enjoy the spoils of David's victory. Now, David also has a son. David has a lineage. And when David is sitting on the throne, he is elevated to a throne. He becomes the leader of all of Israel. And God makes a promise to him that his kingdom will be forever, that there will always be someone sitting on the throne of David. And David has children that has children that has children. And then we find in the beginning pages of the New Testament, the lineage links all the way to Jesus. So from Seth to Noah, to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, God has been progressively revealing his plan so beautifully, so carefully crafted from before the foundation of the world to preserve a special lineage, a special seed from Eve to Mary. And now what we get in the New Testament is we see that Mary has a, we have a more special seed than Isaac, who was born to a more special woman than Sarah, uh, a son named Jesus, born of a virgin named 
Mary. And this promised seed named Jesus has a more prominent place in history than Jacob. He wasn't chosen because of deceit, but he was chosen because of his perfection as both God and man. This promised seed named Jesus is better than Judah, who offers himself in place not just of a family member, but he offers himself in place of all of humanity. And this promised seed named Jesus steps up as the representative substitute of all of God's people, and he wins the ultimate victory over death, sin, hell, the grave, and Satan, and he delivers a crushing blow to Satan on the cross. And then this promised seed named Jesus, he resurrects from the dead, and he creates a new people of God called the church, who enjoy the spoils of his victory, and is, and Jesus, this, this promised seed, is elevated to an eternal throne for all time, interceding for his people. My friends, this is what we see in the genealogy of Jesus. It screams that God has had a plan since the very beginning of time, since the very beginning of the story to come down to us, to heal us, to save us, to rescue us and make us into his new people. These are the lines of the promised seed who will crush the head of the snake. And my friends, the Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is one story with Jesus and his rescuing work for our sake and for our salvation at the pinnacle, at the center, at the fulcrum on which everything else rests. What Jesus does is he rescues us as the representative substitute on behalf of of all of God's people. He accepts the wrath of God poured onto him for our punishment to win a victory on our behalf. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve so that we could take the victory that he deserves and we could be brought into the family of God, rescued, adopted as his children. And my friends, today in Clarksville, Tennessee, or wherever you are, you can be a part of the special plan of God. From eternity past, God has had you in his mind. In the garden, knowing the brokenness that would enter into your story, God promises a savior, not just for Adam and not just for Eve, not just all the way to Mary, but he promises a savior for you. He promises that you can have a rescuer, that you can have a personal savior that has come to save you from separation from God and bring you back, taking the punishment that your sin deserves so that he can give you the victory that he deserves. And all you have to do is hear this message, believe that it's true for you, and obey it by making Jesus Lord and King over your life. This is where we get to it almost every week. If you are joining us and you do not yet identify as a follower of Jesus, the call for you today is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to turn away from and to turn towards. And to believe the gospel means to hear it. It's true. So it's hearing it, believing it, but then obeying it. Let it change your actions. The, the call, the invitation to receive this rescue is just simply to give your life to King Jesus. Accept the victory that he has won for you and you will live for all eternity. This is what makes you a Christian, not whether you grew up in Sunday school or church, not whether you've had a relationship with a pastor, not whether you've had a connection with a youth group. None of that matters. What matters is, is do you hear this message? Do you believe that it's true for you and you need it? And are you going to obey Jesus by making him Lord over your life, receiving his rescuing work on your behalf. My friends, the entire world is in the midst of a transformation. 
It's moving away from the pain of evil and into this new way of living called the kingdom of God. And this rescuing story, it is continuing. That that, that what happens is, is that God's redeemed people, you guys, if you choose to follow Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you look back on your life and you say, yes, I am part of God's rescued people, you can play a part in spreading his message of hope, believing that one day Jesus will come again and set the world fully right once and for all. My friends, the rescuer has come. He is currently present in the world, rescuing us from sin and brokenness. And then one day he will come and fully restore and redeem everything. He is bringing his people back to himself. And then what he does is he sends them out into the world to invite others into this healing, this goodness, restoration, and rest. And my friends, if you're joining us today and you do identify as a follower of Jesus, you have a mission to share this. So I want to encourage you to invite others into this life that's filled with the rescuing work of Jesus, the promised seed, the promised rescuer sent from God for you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.